sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally. Welcome to episode 58 of You Don't Have to Yell, the only podcast clinically proven to prevent truth decay. It's the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here. And if you've listened to this show long enough, you've heard me wonder aloud why Christianity, a religion founded by someone who preached pacifism and charity, somehow became the religion most embraced by the political party that promotes increased military spending and cuts in food stamps. And for those of you who think the Christian vote as a conservative monolith that focuses strictly on issues such as abortion and gay marriage... Our next guest is one who breaks the mold. Mark Bauer was born and raised in a conservative Christian household in Texas and found his faith in politics intersecting around issues of social and racial justice. And he's running on the ballot as an independent for Texas's 24th district. I think it's Texas's or Texas. I don't know. I can't get apostrophes right. At any rate, the district is just north of Dallas. And it is deep purple, politically. And he joined me to talk about his move from the Republican Party to the partyless frontier many of us have found ourselves in in 2020. It was a really interesting conversation that literally could have gone on for hours, and I hope you enjoy it. I'll be back at the end with some final thoughts. Okay, so Mark, I always always say my toughest question for the beginning. Uh, Could you tell the audience who you are and... What you're doing? Yeah, uh, my name is Mark Bauer. Um, my background's in journalism, but I recently left journalism to pursue politics, and so I'm running for Congress as an independent in Texas District 24, which is, if you're familiar with North Texas at all, it pretty much encompasses that entire mid cities area, including DFW Airport. So if you've ever flown in there or had a layover yeah. there, uh, that's that's where it is. Uh, where I grew up, I grew up in North Texas and, um, and so that's what I'm doing and, uh, uh dabbling in a variety of other pursuits as well. Yeah. Meantime, and but. now did you, did you grow up in the 24th district or did you grow up a little further North? Uh, just down the street actually in Arlington, okay. Texas, which, uh, is right adjacent to it. And I've lived and worked in, uh, in district 24 as, as a, as an adult. Yeah. So it's funny before I interview anyone running for office, Mm -hmm. I always just take a look at kind of where they're running and, Mm -hmm. uh, and by Texas standards, the 24th district is pretty small. Um, cause we, I interviewed, let's see back in April, April, I think it was Wacy Alpha Cody, who's running as a libertarian candidate for Texas 11th. Mm Mm-hmm which is I think twice the size of my home state of Massachusetts. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So, so by those standards, your district is pretty quaint and what is it? Is it mainly suburban or a mix of suburban and urban? Yeah. A mix of suburban. Well, it's actually, it's just most, mostly suburban. Uh, And that's, that's all it is actually. So it touches the borders of Fort Worth and Dallas cities Mm -hmm. proper. And, Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't, doesn't incorporate any of those urban areas, but, uh, I'm curious. Are you talking about size, uh, just in terms of geographic? Mileage? Geographic. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. I didn't yeah. know if you were talking about population. Yeah, 
No, 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 no. And 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 in East Coast terms, you know, a long drive is like west of I ninety five. So our our spatial relations here, especially in New England, are very skewed compared mm-hmm. with the rest of the country, and definitely uh, compared with Texas. Um, now, I I want to get into some of the things you're doing. At, you know, or you know, I want to get into some of the things you're doing in your campaign some of the things you'd like to do uh, when elected. But bef- before we do that, I- I'd like to dive into your bio because you know when you and I originally chatted, you've got a really interesting journey in terms of how you got to where you are. And you know, maybe to tee things up, you, know, you were born and raised in a fairly conservative, Republican, Christian household, right? Right. Yeah, I grew up uh, Republican, conservative. I was actually homeschooled until my junior year of high school. If that gives you kind of any indication to exactly mm-hmm. how conservative and Christian we we were, my family was. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a family like that you think of a, a conservative Christian family now with maybe Fox on the TV all the time. It wasn't really that mm-hmm. to that degree, but... Um, but yeah, that's how I raised, was raised evangelical, non-denomination. And so mm-hmm. that definitely influenced, you know, my perspective growing up a great deal. Yeah. Yeah. I was, so I was raised and, you know, people who listen to this podcast know I was raised a very conservative Irish Catholic, uh, in Boston. So, mm-hmm. uh, there was and and at the time I was growing up, it was right around, you know, the heat of the culture wars or when that started to get turned up a bit. And what you saw is a lot of Irish who were originally Democrats. Now that was kind of like the, that was the party. If you were, if you were Irish, you went to, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they started to turn more, more Irish of my parents' generation. So, you know, these would be like second generation, uh, Americans, you know, these folks tended to go Republican, mm-hmm. uh, for two reasons, you know, number one, uh, they were a conservative uh, Christian and the Democratic Party up here was kind of moving away from that. Uh, and the second part of it is, you know, some of them, you know, went to college, started making money and and were, you know, the, the whole idea of 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 keeping your money or of low taxes was appealing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, and so I was raised fair for Massachusetts, Boston standards, pretty, pretty strictly, I'd say, like we couldn't watch MTV uh, we couldn't watch good times. We, I'm dating myself now. If you don't even know any of these shows, that's fine. You, Three's Company. I don't know if you know that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah, that one sings bell. Yeah, couldn't watch Three's Company. Like we couldn't watch anything that involved like cohabitation or gender bending at all. <laughs> so we and the only reason we had cable television is because, uh. The, there was a Celtics game on and they got blacked out and my dad went berserk like because he couldn't get the Celtics. And yeah. so all this time, we're, now we're the last family on my street to get cable, mind you. Last family on the street. All this time, it is a moral stance. Like he is the Alamo of virtue until he can't get the Celtics and all of a sudden that changes everything. So yeah, so... It, it, I don't know if that's sounding similar to the way you were raised, but that was. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we didn't have cable. I didn't have cable until I got to college. Uh, so mm-hmm. we didn't have cable at all growing up. 
And I remember, uh, you know, very Texan thing. I remember when King of the Hill was first coming on the air and I remember yeah. asking my parents, can we watch this? It's a cartoon. We tried to snicker them that way make them think that, you know, maybe they didn't know what the show was actually about. Yeah. And, uh, they said, no way. Absolutely not. And, um, so we weren't allowed to watch things like Power Rangers either or Pokemon or we, Oh really? We, yeah. Yeah. We totally missed out on the Harry Potter situation as well. And until I got to college and, and picked up on that. So yeah. My, my, my yeah. Favorite. Yeah. Yeah. And so the homeschooling, was that a way of kind of insulating you from the, 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 the world in a way or keeping you from some of the, the evils of society or was it something else? You know what? That, that's a great question. Probably a conversation I need to go back and have with my parents. Um, <laughs> you know, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it was probably a little bit of that. And you know, my, my parents uh, are just the types that if they are going to sell a house, they're going to sell by owner. If they're going to install a new floor, they're going to do it themselves. I remember my dad installing our roof. Very much just people who, for whatever reason, like to do it their their own way. And so, you know, maybe that's where I got my independent streak from. Yeah, got it. Got it. And so that sort of swung in the other direction because when you went to college, things, you started to change, right? Yeah. So when I went to college and started learning things well i guess it started to shift kind of between high school and college because i went to a community college and kind of just hung around working odd Mm -hmm. jobs lifeguarding uh taking some classes here and there before i was really set on journalism as a pursuit and in that time i was kind of wayward and a little lost in the faith uh because it just it wasn't answering some of the the church wasn't answering some of the more difficult questions that mm-hmm. I was seeing a rise in culture. So I was like, man, this, this church looks really powerless, honestly, uh, this Christianity. And so, uh, but then it was going back to college and within a couple of years, learning more about the world, uh, sociology, psychology, biology, uh, learning more about the universe. Uh, I actually began to have a greater appreciation for my religious upbringing and not less yeah. just because I, I began to see some of the, the things that I'd learned reflected uh, in those things. What were some of the beliefs that you lost and what were some of the beliefs that you gained in that process? Well, some of those were just about morality in general. Um, Christianity of the nineties very much made you believe that they had the corner on morality. Uh, Mm. and that anybody who wasn't a professing believer was an immoral person, you know, hence the the forbidden, you know, television shows and, um, you know, pop culture things uh at the time and uh and you know this is around the time also that uh lgbt is becoming a a bigger deal people are coming Mm -hmm. out of the closet i remember i I graduated in 2003 and you know there were people who we figured were probably gay or, or lesbian in our class but just didn't talk about it right like um and so, you know, over the course of the next few years, that becoming a bigger and bigger issue and really kind of being perplexed by the the, the church's stance on it uh, that seemed, you know, even if you still believe that that's not a lifestyle conducive to you know, holiness or what have you, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's still a certain degree of accepting uh, acceptance uh, that I mm-hmm. think that the church should posture themselves regardless of kind of where you fall on, on the stance either way. Mm. And so 
Uh, and then it, it, as it turns out, you know, around the same time, two of my own brothers, I grew up in a big household, eight of us. Yeah. Uh, and two of my brothers were coming out as gay at, at around that time. So it hit home, uh, in a personal way. And, uh, and those two things collided, you know, my faith and then my, uh, my siblings. Yeah. And I, I hate to pry. How did your parents deal with the news about your brothers? Uh, they, they reacted in different ways. Um, one of my younger brothers actually came out first and, um, and he was one where we, he was a little bit more flamboyant. And so it was one of the things where he came out and we're like, Oh, kind of makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but then I, uh, another younger brother, he's actually, he's, he's older than, you know, this brother I just mentioned, he came out and we were, everybody was pretty floored uh yeah he's, he's not one that we would have thought or expected it from at all and uh you know even he was one that we were trying to hook up our single girlfriends with um and so that one my mom especially took a little bit more difficult yeah yeah it's i so again same sort of thing uh we were you know we were originally raised thinking homosexuality was a sin and that was a big part of the conversation um i think obviously and and my parents have since uh my parents have since changed my daughter actually came out uh i don't know how many months ago uh yeah yeah so i mean obviously i had changed my opinion long before Mm -hmm. that like you um Mm -hmm. The interesting thing, though, is so I went to an all boys Catholic high school and had a you know pretty tight group of friends, and I think at least you know three of them came out of the closet. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that really hit me hard was you know back then homophobic comments were just common, mm-hmm. you know. And so I started to th- so I apologized to one of them. I was mm-hmm. like, "Listen, whatever I said," and he just said, "Don't worry about it." Like, mm-hmm. um, but. Uh, funny story about this guy too he was so you know when you're catholic you go through confirmation i don't know how it is when you're evangelical but confirmations Mm -hmm. you're 15 16 and it's sort of the final sacrament uh before marriage effectively and so you get to choose a confirmation name right and they don't give you any guidance they just say you can do anything from the bible and so this guy who again uh you know closeted gay being raised in this church that basically says the way he feels is a sin uh, in the middle of class. This is, you know, Sunday school or, or CCD as we call it. He says he wants the name Judas. Mm. And so the teacher says, you can't say that. And he's like, well, you said anything from the Bible. And so (laughs) needless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, needless to say he ended up changing it, but, uh, but yeah. So, so then I guess as far as, so that was, that was some stuff you, you changed on. What about the stuff that maybe made you value your faith? What were some of the things you saw that really made you realize like the, the value of, of your, your Christian upbringing? Well, the more I learned, it, it probably came about, um, well, yeah, through a myriad of things, just learning more about the human body, about, uh, like I said, space in the universe. I know some people go the opposite direction, but it just really made me, uh, in awe of, the universe and being okay with not having all the answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and that doesn't scare me. You know, I think that there's a, there's a beauty and a peace in, in being okay with not knowing all the answers. And so there's still tons of questions about the universe and how it ticks, but 
you know, to me, I saw the the big bang I saw in Genesis one with let there be light. And, um, you know, just the way the, the universe is, the creation is described in Genesis and my understanding of how the big bang in the universe unfolded, uh, very much to me was reflected in, in scripture, even if it wasn't, um, you know, a, a direct correlation, uh, I yeah. still saw what I, what appeared to, to my eyes, at least to be, uh, to be very similar. So I thought that was powerful. Yeah, definitely. You know, and I love that. I love the way you, 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 and I don't can't remember how you phrased it, but not having all the answers and being comfortable with that. I was, cause I was, I was talking to my daughter about this last night where I was saying, you know, there are some folks who look at the Bible and they look at it like an instruction book and whatever it says in there is exactly what it was and what you should do. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and granted there's some selective reading there, I think too, even in the people who claim to interpret the Bible, literally uh, there is still some, some selective cherry picked uh, phrases or sel- cherry picked passages. Uh, I think that they, that they use to guide, uh, to guide themselves. Um, and, and, and I feel that comes out of a need for certainty. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel that comes out of a need to be certain about things. And, and in my mind, the, the flip side of that is, is that, you know, for me personally, and I'm still a a practicing Catholic, my faith is really more about helping me understand and cope with uncertainty Mm. and really approaching the universe and approaching life with a sense of humility, Mm. you know, with a sense that I don't know everything. Mm -hmm. And, and I have to work on myself, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if there's one thing I would fault um, Christianity with doing, American Christianity with doing, again, in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, even maybe now to an extent, is making their faith more about what other people are doing rather than what's mm-hmm. inside of them. Mm-hmm. You know, And does yeah. that kind of resonate? Is that matching your thought process or am I... No, totally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, that's one of the things I was like, man, there's so many busybodies, so many Bible thumpers who are so concerned with what others are doing that mm-hmm. they're completely neglecting, you know, yeah, what you said, what's going on inside of you. And that's where the real work has to be. You're going to exhaust yourself if you're trying to, ex- to control external factors. And, mm-hmm. uh, and the more you tend to your own garden, uh, the more, uh, one, you empower other people to, to do that because you're not in their business and they're going to be inspired by what they see in you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have a nice lawn, your neighbor's going to be curious about how you did that, you know, but mm-hmm. they're probably not going to be as open to it if you're knocking on their door being like, well, your, your grass is looking a little tall over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so show, don't tell is, is kind of uh, an ethos of mine. Because my understanding is there's an, you had an experience with counseling that really helped you in developing this philosophy about owning what's happening inside mm-hmm. and that really played out in your interpretation of events and your your political journey am i mm-hmm. maybe could, could you explain that a little bit yeah so just all all this decade has actually been super transformative for me um i i left school in 2010 um but while i was there i was already kind of trying to do, to divorce myself from politics 
you know, especially as a young journalist, it's like, okay, well, how, like, should we even vote? Like, is that, uh, is that okay? Is that a thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and because we really want to be, uh, empty of any preconceived ideas because we want to go where the, the data and the facts take us. And so it was already kind of trying to do that work. And I was okay with that. Again, as I said, like I'd, I'd seen that Christianity just really didn't have some of those answers. And, uh, and Republicanism at the time, you know, Obama was elected in 2008. And so ushering in uh, what was heralded as, as some new change, which I was like, you know what, like, I'm all for it. Let's give this a go. Let's, let's see what unfolds. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it was around, I think, 2012 uh, that uh, some things really kind of begin to churn in, in me. And that was after the Newtown shooting in um when uh, the school was shot up and I can't remember Adam Lance, I believe. Yeah. And uh, you know, I grew up again, Republican, but I'd always been kind of agnostic on the gun issue, even though my, my grandpa was a avid hunter. Mm -hmm. Uh, He, he packed his own ammunition. Like he was, he was the the real deal. And, um, but I didn't shoot a gun until my adult life. And it was around the time that the gun issue was coming out. I was like, come on Republicans. Like I was totally bought into the, you know, the common sense gun reforms. And I was like, what is the deal of Republicans? Like, just get on board. And it wasn't until I began to really look into the issue that I was like, a lot of these policy proposals that Democrats are peddling wouldn't really even intersect with any of these mass shootings that we see. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they might, they might help reduce gun violence overall in general, maybe, but gun violence had already been plummeting since 1980s. Uh, but if you looked at the news, you wouldn't you wouldn't know that by by the headlines that were going on and, and with some of these mass shootings, which are mm-hmm. horrific, and, and we need to figure out a way to end them. Uh, but um, but realize, okay, what what is why are journalists continue to peddling this? Why are Democrats? Uh, because it didn't take me a whole ton of research to kind of land on that conclusion uh, and realization, and uh, and so I was like, man, okay, well, Democrats they're either idiots or they're, they're trying to mislead us intentionally. Uh, and I know they're, they're not idiots. And so what I concluded was that they were kind of just, uh, trying to be a little manipulative there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it was, a probably a few months later, about a year later that a Buzzfeed article came out where some left leaning journalists, uh, you know, admittedly so who weren't comfortable with guns came to the same conclusion, uh, and saying that a lot of these gun proposals that are pitched and, uh, and elevated after mass shootings wouldn't have done anything to prevent those mass shootings. And so mm-hmm. it's like, why do we continue to, to talk about these things after such a horrific event? Uh, except that probably emotions are high and those are times when you're going to get a lot of support for these things when you otherwise wouldn't. And so mm-hmm. in my, in my opinion, that's, that's kind of shameful, but it then also got me thinking, okay, well then if, if journalists and, and people on the left are getting things wrong about me, um, you know, saying things about me as a Republican, saying things about me as a male, saying things about me as, as a Christian, which I'm beginning to identify myself as again, then what am I getting wrong about them? Like, so it kind of opened my eyes to make me realize that there are some pretty strong held beliefs that I must have that are wrong. And so kind of began to shake that out, or, you know, after 2012 through 2015. And at that time, I was in a relationship with a, a Latina woman who had uh, immigrated from Colombia. Uh, and so began to kind of understand and be exposed to that story, which on the right, you know, tells a very specific 
profile of, of what an immigrant is uh, mm-hmm. and looks like, especially from South and Central American countries. And, um, and so just everything that I thought I knew to be true uh, was kind of being warped and, and turned on its head. Uh, and so it's specifically that time period related to, to my political beliefs. Um, yeah. 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 And, and one thing I'd bring up too, because we have, listeners of all political bents here mm-hmm. is the gun issue specifically is is one where i think to an extent both sides get it wrong and both sides mm-hmm. benefit from the other side getting it wrong because uh one so back in october um I did a whole series on the gun issue and I come from Massachusetts, no big gun culture. I've fired a gun before, but you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I don't really care if they ban them tomorrow, it wouldn't make a huge difference to me. Yeah. Uh, and so I tended to, to fall on the left leaning side of things, which I, I didn't understand why uh, people were so resistant to the idea of gun control in light mm-hmm. of all the mass shootings. And so I ended up interviewing an old friend of mine who grew up in Ireland and moved to Oklahoma to be with his wife, to live with his wife. And she grew up in Tulsa. And in that time in Oklahoma, he started hunting and he started collecting AR-15s. So I was like, I got to talk to this guy and find out uh, what he, you know, what he's thinking. And again, this is for those interested in listening. It's back in, it's an October episode. Should be pretty easy to find. Uh, But when I asked him, I said, I said, so what do you think of the gun issue in the U.S.? He goes, I don't think America has a gun issue. I think America has a mental health issue. Mm. And it was very interesting to hear this guy who grew up in a country where guns are highly restricted Mm -hmm. and where they look at us and they think we're crazy for our policies on guns. Mm -hmm. And in that amount of time and being in this country, he had come to that conclusion. And if you look at the statistics and if you're really concerned about gun violence, if you're really concerned about gun violence, the majority of gun deaths are suicides. And so, again, I don't think anyone really wants to get into the business of regulating suicide. So if you look at the next tier, the next group, it's gun crime, which is typically done with pistols, not with mm-hmm. AR-15s. Right. And so if you really want, if you're really concerned about human life, then tackle the issues that get illegal guns on the streets. Mm-hmm. And banning the AR-15 isn't going to do it. Right. Um, and and so in that period of time, I went from being someone who was fairly uh, pro-gun control in light of school shootings to realizing that the that issue is really just a fundraising tool for the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And every time they go out and they make a big stink about guns, they know they're going to get donors. They know mm-hmm. they're going to... Tr- tap into people's emotions and they're going to get their allegiance. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also know the Republicans are never going to go for it. Right. And the flip side of it is, is you do have some sensible reforms you could do to reduce mm-hmm. the number of guns entering city streets, just mm-hmm. uh, closing the gun hole, the gun show loophole, uh, requiring registration, regulating uh, personal sales of firearms. Those mm-hmm. things would have a meaningful impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I don't think the Republican party can touch it because any step towards regulation is viewed as capitulation mm-hmm. and is viewed as an erosion of second amendment rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm with you hundred percent. I think it is a tool that's used more to sow division 
and create allegiance through that division than it is either party being serious about making any changes. I I 100% agree. And so, you know, as I'm seeing the left do this, uh, and then I'm looking at the right, I'm like, the right, well, the right's not much better because they're not even trying to address the issue of gun violence and pretend like they do care about human life mm-hmm. uh so you know I, I have no home in the nra and mm-hmm. and uh and just am becoming increasingly frustrated and disillusioned and especially after um the florida school shooting uh mm-hmm. forgive me i can't recall the name uh, uh off the top of my hold head. on we're gonna we're gonna figure this one out together uh parkland parkland yes yeah so after Parkland, they had the the whole town hall and they, you know, they propped these poor kids up, didn't give them any time to grieve or process the trauma that they just experienced, but were mm-hmm. fully willing to to use them in this uh, because you trot kids out and um, anyone who tries to attack them would be foolish. Yeah. Uh, and but the fallout you know, from that was, was pretty quick. And it was people on the right who were saying, you can't do this to kids. You can't suddenly give them a platform uh, that didn't grow organically, that was propped up and put there by adults. Uh, and, and now you have so many of those Parkland kids who are like just out of the game because they are, uh, completely messed up because they didn't have an opportunity to heal, uh, which should have been at the forefront. If you're talking about caring about lives, uh, probably should have been at the forefront of, of our minds. Uh, looking yeah. The survivors. So. Yeah. And especially in a, in a lot of ways, those kids kind of got thrown to the wolves because they became villains of the second amendment crowd. Mm-hmm. And so now these kids who, again, any high schooler sees a hot mic and a camera and they're going to go running uh, and not knowing what they're getting into, like you said, they don't have time to process. They don't have time to grieve. And now they've got to deal with just the the, the army of trolls mm-hmm. that think that they're crisis actors or mm-hmm. or, consp- or or part of some big conspiracy and so on. So yeah, man, I I never really thought of it from that angle, but now that you mm-hmm. say it, I'm I'm mm-hmm. I'm definitely uh, I'm picking up what you're laying down, man. Yeah. So that just, that just kind of stuff didn't leave a good taste in my mouth. And yeah. and I'm like, man, so who, who can I go to? I don't like either party right now. I, I really don't yeah. uh, the, the way they're playing ball. So, yeah. And so you, you made a decision that you were, you were going to just run as an independent then. Right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So this was around 2015. I think Parkland mm-hmm. occurred in 2015 and yeah. You know, that's when the, the GOP primary is going on. And and uh, it really didn't like what I saw coming out of the, that, you know. Um, didn't like the fact that Trump was gaining ground. Didn't like that he was uh, hitching his wagon to, uh, or I should say rather, evangelicals were hitching their wagon to him. And mm-hmm. I was just like, what in the world is going on? But at the same time, I could see how we would arrive at someone like Trump. Uh, because if you look back at the 2012 election, you were you took a good man who someone who I consider a good man, Mitt Romney, who came from your part of the country. I don't I don't know. Yeah, you, you probably know a little bit more about him than I do. Yeah, uh, someone who even if you disagree with him on policy, I don't think that you can argue that he's a bad person. Um, you know, and they tarred and feathered him, and why in in 2012 and and just made him out to be this horrific person, and uh, and so why continue to trot out these good 
patriotic people, even if you disagree with them, if they're just going to be hosed, regardless of how good they are. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting you say that about the evangelical community uh, glomming on to Trump because you know, as a as a Catholic, we're kind of used to our church doing nefarious things you know it's just it kind of goes with the territory um so uh, i i kind of like and i always like to say being catholic is kind of like having an amateur magician in the family you know just kind of humor them on holidays and gatherings and then the rest of the time you go about your life um but evangelicals in, in and this is strictly my perception i'm hoping you can educate me on it but evangelicals in in my mind seem to have a sense of purism to them Mm-hmm. um and and maybe are a little less cynical so how did that hit you as an evangelical to see the community kind of latching on to trump like that yeah well it's something that you know my friends and i who grew up in the church as well and who kind of in the same place as i am are are, are grieved by because we're saying you you guys are the ones who taught us these values and you you now you know our parents our grandparents are kind of frustrated with us for uh the direction that we're going but we're at the same time frustrated because we're saying you're you lack principle you're the ones mm-hmm. who taught us uh to you know think for ourselves to have this uh to look out for the downtrodden to care for the poor uh to us uh, you know speak truth to power and here you are doing a complete turnabout uh and latching on to someone who really contradicts all of those values so it's it's kind of a weird place to be because um you know the people who taught you that are are now kind of ridiculing you we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in a moment with mark bauer i hope you're enjoying this episode And I hope this episode is making it clear that the moderate measured voices such as Mark are being crowded out of the process by our electoral system. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Two-party systems mean you only need to be the least worst candidate to win. So you can spend more time serving the special interests that fund your election than listening to your constituents for fear of being voted out of office. Now we can change that And to change it, we need to get the word out. We need more people like you. So to help, share. You don't have to yell with your friends, family, anyone out there who might be interested. And also reach out to me with the hashtag YDHTY on social media to share ideas and tell me what you're thinking. Now remember, a group of men passed a constitutional amendment to give women the right to vote at no benefit to them. Another group passed a constitutional amendment banning booze. And what this makes clear is that a group of determined vocal citizens can make a change. And it starts right here, right now. As always, thank you for listening and thanks for your support. Is there a generational divide in the evangelical community? So is it more common for older evangelicals to really be pro-Trump and maybe younger evangelicals to be, if not anti-Trump, at least questioning this allegiance mm-hmm. that the elders have for them. Totally, yeah. I would say it's uh, thirty-five and under, and then thirty-five and up is kind of where uh, that divide occurs, at least from from what I've seen. 
um, anyone who's a little older who is evangelical is definitely pro-Trump and uh, anyone younger, basically anyone on, you know, who was in middle school or high school when 9-11 occurred. I don't know if that has any, you know, if that's just correlation. Yeah. Uh, but whatever our generation grew up with is making them really turned off to to what they're seeing. And, and I'm really not sure what, what the contributing factor is to that. That's really interesting because I think the perception of the evan of the evangelical community outside of it mm-hmm. tends to be that that it operates as a monolith that there's not that ideological diversity, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think that's probably laden in stereotypes and laden mm-hmm. in the fact that you know most of the time if you are non evangelical and you're from the Northeast or the West Coast, your um, your uh, you know, all you're seeing are the Liberty universities and the more conservative of the group. Um, yeah. 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 And another thing you touched on that I think was really interesting and something that I've become more attuned to as I've gotten older is, is the concept of Christianity being a, not just a, a religion of personal betterment or a, a religion of looking inward, but also a religion of compassion mm-hmm and a religion of justice. Mm -hmm. And it seems like that's, that's strong. (laughs) Sounded like Darth Vader. That's strong in you. (laughs) Am I, am I right there? Or am I, am I wrong? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Right. And, you know, I don't know, you know, it's hard to know because I wasn't raised any other way, but I, I do recall specific times growing up where, you know, watching Christian cartoons or going to Sunday school and, having that message and those values instilled in me uh i remember telling my dad you know from a very young age um i want to be wealthy so that i can take care of the poor uh, or mm. help help take care of the poor and so that was uh, something that was in me from very young uh and just one of those things where i was like well this is what i was taught this is the way it is and this is uh how faith should be lived out and um and so, yeah, a little dis- disillusioned uh, to see that um, that that's not consistent and as universal as I, as I thought in the church. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and so, I don't want to get too off topic here, but it, were you raised with sort of that aspect of service and that aspect of of caring for the poor and such? Um, it's hard. It's hard to say if you know. I, I know that. Um, I'm trying to think of conversations with my parents. You know, a lot of my conversations and the things that they tried to instill in us was uh, a good work ethic, you know, take care yeah. of yourself. Um, don't, you know, you, you shouldn't rely on, on handouts or other people to, to take care of you. You, you do you. Uh, my dad did emphasize, you know, wisdom and biblical mm-hmm. wisdom and the, the belief that if you, you know, ask God or the universe for wisdom that, that will be given to you. And, uh, but I think it was really kind of the, the things that they put in front of us, you know, like whether it was, a you know, a Christian cartoon, uh, where those values were expressed. Um, uh, I would say that I learned some of those really honestly from Christian culture, uh, Christian entertainment, uh, more than, more than anything. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny. We never, you know, we never talked about it as kids. I mean, we, we knew that you should be 
we knew that charity was important and we knew that, you know, justice, social justice was important to an extent. Um, I don't think we focused on it much because, you know, we got all, we got our Catholicism from my grandmother. Like she was the poor, you know? So it was like, I mean, so we kind of grew up with this idea that um, we grew up knowing how well, how good we had it, mm-hmm. I guess, mm-hmm. because of yeah. how my parents grew up and how my grandmother grew up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it's an, I, I think it is an, it's not an aspect of Christianity that I think is talked about enough. Mm-hmm. And even when you look at the Islamic world, for example, for its faults, uh, charity is a huge part of that culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, and really giving back that wealth to mm-hmm. the betterment of people, and I and there's just there's not even enough of that discussed today. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we talk a lot about uh, taxes, and we talk a lot about what the government can do, and certainly I I think we we need a social safety net. Mm-hmm. On the same token, there there we seem to have abandoned an ethos mm-hmm. of caring ourselves. You mm-hmm. know. And of doing that, doing that work ourselves. Yeah. And that's a, a great point. And I think uh, it's missing a little bit of the, the ethos. It's missing a little bit of the teaching. But I also think I was having this conversation with someone uh, and whose kind of expertise is around economics. And we were just talking about how hard it is, how tired everybody is, how hardworking everybody is. They're working longer hours, more efficiently in those hours that they're working. Uh, and they aren't seeing the same economic rise that our parents experienced. And so, you know, I just, maybe, maybe our parents were (laughs) as tired as we are, but, uh, like, I don't even have a family and I'm like, man, I am always tired, especially when I was working. Uh, and so we were talking about the value of, you know, local charity and church filling a lot of those gaps that now people kind of expect the government to fill. And, Maybe it's because a lot of people my age left the church. And so uh, if you have a lot of people leaving those communities, you just by nature that aren't going to have as much as many resources to pour back in. Yeah. Uh, but then if you ask people say, hey, you know, we, you know, your nonprofit, your local charities, your, your churches, uh, they need help. It's almost like they'll look at you and be like, you want us to do even more than we already are? Like, no, thanks. Like, I can barely stay afloat over here myself. Yeah. You know, we're at we're at an interesting point in in our, I think, in our society and our culture, because if you look at uh, if you look at Europe, especially, which is generally far more secular, uh, the government plays a, a much larger role in social welfare. Mm-hmm. and 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 it's ex- it's sort of expected there's a much larger safety net um interesting thing and this isn't to knock the social safety net because i'm actually uh, i think we could do more as a country um mm-hmm. but interestingly you look at the places where it's the strongest and suicides also the highest oh wow yeah okay. and and i don't know it, look it, it's it's kind of tough to say because the the places in Europe with the highest suicide rate also happen to be in Scandinavia, mm-hmm. uh, which has the strongest social safety net. And it's like so dark there, mm-hmm. you know, so, so much of the year. So that, that could mm-hmm. have an influence, but, mm-hmm. um, but I do think that there, that, you know, charity and service, it's something that benefits the giver and the receiver. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, I think in this country, uh, there there I think when the churches were stronger, there was I think more of that built in sense of community that that mm-hmm. doesn't exist in the same way now. Um, mm-hmm. It certainly wasn't perfect, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of that a lot of the loss of audiences, unfortunately well earned. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I think, I think we, we we're a culture that's sort of coming out of that now Mm -hmm. and we're becoming more secular. And at the same time, we haven't really figured out what is it that's going to plug that hole, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. There, there is a big hole there. And I think, you know, for its faults, Christianity and what other religions, they teach you how to embrace paradox. They embrace you how to, or they teach you how to embrace the idea that to die is to live, that mm-hmm. to uh, less is more, that least is, uh, you know, the last is, is first, or uh, I'm probably botching that, but that's uh that's really lost on our generation i think is is that idea of paradox um and and i think that that's contributing to a lot of our a lot of our dysfunction probably even a lot of our mental health issues you know uh, mm-hmm. is, is our inability to embrace that yeah, yeah. In- interesting stat that i learned when i did the gun uh the gun month back in october uh, and, and there's a blog article on my site that folks can read, uh, about it. YDHTY.com. That's not a plug on my own podcast, Mark. <laughs> it's just to help people. But, yeah. uh, one of the things I looked at is I looked at the state of mental health in this country. Interesting thing is the part of the world with the highest propensity or the, the highest distribution of the gene that causes anxiety and depression is East Asia. Hmm. Number one, 90% of folks in East Asia carry that gene. So they mm. have a genetic predisposition to anxiety, anxiety and depression. Uh, America has the lowest. So it's like mm. 10% of the population. Mm. If you look at the, the amount of the population of East Asia versus um, America that actually report instances of anxiety and depression, that number flips. Mm. Yeah. And so you have this inordinately large group of people in the United States reporting some form of anxiety and depression and a minimal number in East Asia. And one of the things this this particular study that I wrote about talks about is how the East Asia generally has uh, communal societies mm. and very family-oriented societies. And mm-hmm. so and and I think there is that sense of uh I think you get, there's a sense of well being mm-hmm. uh, with that. Whereas in America, and I mean, you, you kind of alluded to this earlier, we tend to be very independent and very self reliant and sufficient. And, and I think a, a, a cost of that is maybe is loneliness, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, a, a lack of community. And so um, I know we're, we're talking a lot of philosophy and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm loving it. Um, I'm interested to know, like, so how, how does all this play out in, in terms of your, your decision to run and uh, yeah. some of the principles you're, you're running under? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, that stat you just brought up actually segues perfectly into that, at least, uh, for the next 
part of, of that for me uh, because, it, you know, I, after college, got into my career, started dating a woman. We, we became engaged, realized part of the reason that the, the relationship began crumbling after that was uh, to do with a lot of my own unhappiness. Uh, mm-hmm. And so sought counseling as a result of that to try to preserve the relationship and uh, learned a lot of great, valuable lessons in counseling. And, um, the, you know, the relationship ended up ending anyway. But uh, I think we were both better people on the other side of it. But one of those things was that I learned was one, I was neglecting a lot of those things that contribute to my own well-being. I was neglecting, you know, uh, friendships that I had developed in college, you know, begin working and focusing on the relationship. And so just wasn't focusing on those things that, that bring, that make a, a good human being. And, mm-hmm. um, and so, but I also in that, in counseling saw that the same conflict that arises on a relational level, you know, between a, a man and a woman, a, a friend, uh, whatever the case is, uh, those same conflict resolution principles can be applied, I think, on a macro level. And that's what I kind of begin to see in the race uh, conversation. You know, I was really perplexed by that. This was around the time of Ferguson. Uh, with Michael Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, man, a lot of our conflict has to do with I, what I think is just misunderstanding each other. And, you know, mostly white people misunderstand black people. Um, mm-hmm. so I need, I should clarify. And so, yeah. Um, so it, this was in 2015 relationship ended in, in 2016 around just happened to be around the time of the election. Uh, I wasn't really completely thrilled with the direction that my career was going. I was in content marketing at the time and I was just like, you know what? Like I'm, I'm just going to go to DC and see what the heck is going on. I need to understand. Uh, Cause I had read and I don't remember who said this and I wish I did, but I read that power seems mystical and almost magical to those who don't have it. And that was, that hit me because I was like, that's definitely me. You know, I, I'm just a, a kid from, Dallas, Texas. I, I never held any power, never been close to it. So mm-hmm. I want to understand it because if it's just mechanisms and, and you know, uh, coalition building and, and things like that, I, I want to understand it and, and how it works. Uh, and so I moved out to DC uh, and that's where I, I lived for a couple of years, uh, made friends with a lot of people who worked on the Hill, uh, people who I count as, as my good friends. And um, now, and started a podcast on racial bias, understanding racial bias, created it out of those lessons that I learned in counseling to try to apply those on a macro level, apply mm-hmm. them to the conversation uh, so that people who look like me and, and sound like me, white, straight men, you know, these are things that they're not exposed to. So exposing them in a way that in language that is familiar to them and, and not um, threatening. And, uh, and so that's what I was doing as well while mm-hmm. I was working in legal journalism which was adjacent to politics. Uh, we covered regulatory issues in the Supreme Court and, and things like that, but we weren't in politics itself. So, uh, but really kind of just begin to see the same things popping up that I saw in 2016. Uh, I thought the Democrats might learn their lessons from, you know, 2016 and why we got to Trump in the first place and maybe might begin speaking to that moderate middle, uh, that pragmatic middle and emphasize solutions over party. And that, that just wasn't the case again. And um, was reading stories about how a lot of Texas congressional members were retiring Republicans specifically and, uh, and how Democrats were setting their sights on Texas uh, as, as a way to flip it. And I was like, heck no, you know, like 
I I don't like Republicans right now, but I certainly also don't like Democrats uh, mm-hmm. just because you guys have proven that you're no better, in my opinion. So that's when I decided to, uh, you know, I, I have what I think is, is the skill set to, with my background in journalism, uh, the ideas, uh, why not go out there and get on the ballot and see what sticks? And so it really felt like you're running into a house fire i i have an extinguisher and, and and so that's how it's been i guess over the last year or so yeah yeah that you know that's that's a lot of the same motivation that got me to start doing this podcast mm-hmm. i just i realized if people of principle didn't step up mm-hmm. and and i'm not trying to pat myself on the back but i certainly am no worse than the folks in dc <laughs> you know um if folks in, of principle don't step up and don't start making their voices heard, it's just going to be left to the people who have been running the show all along. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so how, how have you been, I mean, obviously there's, you're campaigning during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. How's that been? And and what kind, what have you been hearing from voters? What, how have you been received by folks in the district? Yeah, been received really well. Um, I got the opportunity to go to one candidate forum before everything was shut down back in February. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a progressive host, uh, or, uh, an, an association here in the district that is very much progressive leaning. So I knew that I was speaking to that that audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always kind of built myself as a conservative alternative. And I was there, there was one other Republican, there was a Republican there. Uh, there were like five other Democrats and afterward was really surprised at how well the audience received me uh, afterward, how many of the Democrats were like, you just sound like a conservative Democrat. And, uh, <laughs> and which I guess is kind of, you know, true, but um, you know, in terms of philosophy and, and policy stances, but, um, and as we've gone and we, you know, I had to do a signature drive petition to get on the ballot uh, and so I had to go knock on a ton of doors and talk to a ton of different people. And um, people are into it, especially people our, our age who are, like I said, maybe they are beginning their families. Uh, mm-hmm. They've been you know, out of college for about 10 years now, and they're seeing how the system really isn't set up in anyone's favor, despite what people are saying. They're not seeing the benefit of it. And, um, and so I, I'm sensing that a lot of people are disillusioned. Yeah. And they just, they, they really are latching onto this. It's, it's interesting because I have people who are really into it, who fall on the right side of the spectrum and the left, you know, they're Bernie bros. They're, they're really into what AOC is saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's some soft Republicans who, if you sat those two people in the same room outside of our platform and campaign, they wouldn't, they wouldn't talk to each other. They wouldn't get along probably at all, but uh, there's something about what we're doing that, that is resonating with them. Yeah, you know, it's and and uh, to clue people in too to what Mark's been doing. I think you and I exchanged messages on Facebook a couple weeks ago and you were telling me you were right in the middle of that signature drive. Mm-hmm. And I I I'll I'll be totally honest. I I expected you to get back to me and said say you didn't make the threshold. I really did. I was like I and I'm, I'm sorry if that if that rubs you the wrong way i just i was like man like because here in you know i'm in boston things are kind of shut down still Mm. um so uh but man like so first off i'll say i said congratulations before i'm going to say congratulations and in you know 
in front of, for the with the audience as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a big deal. And so you are officially now on the ballot, correct? Yep, officially on the ballot. Uh, got word about a week and a half ago. Yeah, the the big one of the big things we we hear a lot about uh, amongst folks who are running independent or or running for a minor party is ballot access is like a moving target. Mm-hmm. And if you've been doing it, if you've done it more than one election cycle, the the, the terms always change. Mm-hmm. Did did you encounter any headwinds because you were an independent candidate and because you weren't affiliated with the two major parties? Are you talking about headwinds for, uh, in terms of like uh, the powers? The powers? Yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, like folks pushing back on you. Um, no, uh, not yet. I mean, we did request uh, a waiver, you know, people were asking if, the, if we could distribute a, an online petition. Uh, and that would have had to been a, a big, probably a legal challenge in order mm. to achieve that. Uh, the Secretary of State in Texas, uh, I do have to say, they were they were great. They were super responsive, a- answered all of our questions. Uh, so I, I didn't encounter any resistance from them. I'm and part of that also is I don't know that we're making enough of a stink yet <laughs> to yeah. uh, for anyone to to kind of go poking around and and ask them what we're up to. Uh, but that would be a good problem to have. I I look forward to the day where <laughs> people start trying to give me grief. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Luxury problems. So one of the big challenges I hear consistently from minor party and and independent candidates is press access. Mm-hmm. And it can be very difficult for the media to take you seriously. And even when it comes to issues of fair and equal representation or fair and equal time, they just kind of blow that off. Um, you come from a journalism background and you come from a content marketing background. What kind of strategies are you using to kind of to get around that challenge? Yeah, well, that's what, yeah, you mentioned my journalism background, content marketing. That's one reason I knew there was another independent in the race. Uh, but knowing that the challenges that independents confront and are faced with, I realized that my journalism background, uh, that's something that, you know, was priceless when it comes to a campaign. A campaign might pay upwards seventy-five, $100,000 with what I'm able to bring to it. And so, being able to create content that is professional looking smart it's buttoned up um mm-hmm. is is hugely important to showing that a campaign is viable and that we're mm-hmm. not just some kooky guy yelling at the sky uh and and also knowing kind of what things journalists look for uh mm-hmm. in themselves and and so we you know we have a when we put out press releases kind of knowing what that hook is what's going to grab people's attention uh, and so we have, we had a story come out in the local, one of the local metros, Fort Worth Star Telegram just last week. And, uh, and we've been reached out to by another, it's a national publication actually, uh, concerning, um, our campaign. So, so yeah, you're right. That's uh that's been a huge benefit that's worked in our favor. And, you know, one, one other question I have to ask is, you know, obviously social justice is a big issue for you and a lot of the racial thing and i'm sure a lot of the 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 racial strife that's going on is uh is an issue for you and the election is being framed at least by the republican side as a an election over safety an election over lawless lawlessness from the cities bleeding into suburbia and and you're sitting you're sitting right in a district 
that is a prime target for that sort of language because you're in a suburban district just outside of a major city. Is that message resonating? Are you hearing are you hearing folks concerned about that or or no? Older older populations, yeah, a, a little bit. Uh, but when the people who are really appreciating what we're saying in the campaign, uh, this is a very educated district at the same time. And so mm-hmm. Uh, it's very diverse economically, racially. Um, and so, you know, the people who are a little bit lower on that economic status, um, they, they kind of maybe feel like they understand that, um, you know, if they're not affluent, they might be viewed as a threat themselves. And so they're mm-hmm. like, well, we're, we're not a threat. You're, you're the problem. Uh, yeah. and, and some of those younger families, um, they tend to be a little bit, you know, they're, they're college educated probably. And so they've kind of been exposed to these conversations that uh, probably originate a lot of times on college campuses and in academia. Uh, so they've been kind of exposed to these conversations. A lot of them, one fan, one couple in particular that uh, I really kind of remember specifically a conversation on their doorstep was they wanted to know where I stood on that issue. They wanted to know where I stood on defunding the police and on, uh, yeah. on racial bias and violence against black people and, and other kinds of uh, systemic discriminations that we see. And, um, and so they, they are eager, I think, to see people speaking compassionately on those issues uh, and not just as lip service, but with a real understanding of how things are connected. Yeah. That's, that's really good to hear. That's really good for me. That's really good to hear. Um, it's, it's very difficult to get a feel for, what people think for real nowadays. And I, what I hear that every voter has in common, or at least I I shouldn't say every voter, but what I hear specifically out of Republicans and Democrats is I'm scared. Mm. You know, that's what I hear from both of them. And, and, and I, I do, I think it's unfortunate that the, the president especially didn't have to pick this fight. Mm. This wasn't necessary. Mm -hmm. You know, this was a fight. This was a, this, this desire to cast himself as law and order standing against lawlessness. And, and really, I think I, I personally think uh, preying on the racial divide Mm. and preying on people's prejudices Mm-hmm. to bolster his chances of getting reelected is just terrible. Oh yeah. And, you know, um do you find are are people tired of that too? Like when you talk about when you talk to people out there, are are they tired of the vitriol? Are they tired of the partisanship on the yeah. whole? Yeah. I think they were tired of it in 2016 and you for know, sure. As, yeah. As, as silly as it sounds, that's uh, why a lot of people I know voted for Trump in the first place was they were yeah. just, they were tired of it and they thought Trump and he's proven this to be true. He kind of is Kevlar when it comes to this, things don't stick to him. Uh, and so it's kind of like the boy who cried wolf with the Democrats. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you've been crying wolf for the last 10, 15 years. And now we really do have a, a wolf in the hen house and uh, we can't do anything about it. Right. Like, because we don't know what's up from down anymore. Um, and, and so people are tired of it. I think people though, who some of those people who were tired of it in 2016 and voted for Trump, I think that they're seeing that he is actually contributing to it 
more now. Okay. And, um, and so, but I, I do say that some of those hardline Trump supporters still, I think they see, I think that they see that it's, uh, it's not just the Republican party. And so they sense that hypocrisy, uh, and they're like, well, you know, Trump is no worse than, than Biden, who's now paying, you know, talking about, uh, you know, these racial issues, these racial justice issues. And, and, mm-hmm. and even people in the black community, I went to a, a rally in front of the, the Dallas police station and they don't like Joe Biden either, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so it's, I think both sides really are kind of just fed up with people who are saying that they're in their corner and then they get to DC and, uh, they don't do anything about it yeah yeah well i think that's and that that's the overarching sentiment i think Mm -hmm. is that um is that people aren't seeing any results from all the talk Mm -hmm. and and i think as long as you i think the the issue with our system and something that I, i rail against consistently on this podcast is that as long as we are forced to choose between the lesser of two evils, we're always just going to have the least worst candidate. Mm-hmm. You know, we're never going to have the best. Mm-hmm. Um, now, so as far as the election goes, so incumbent Kenny Marchant, Marchant mm-hmm. or Marchant? I don't know. Uh, Marchant. Marchant, Kenny Marchant. Mm-hmm. So he's been there for 15 years. He's retiring. Yep. Um, who else, who are you running against now? I'm running against uh, Republican Beth Van Dyne. Um, re- running against Democrat uh, Candace Valenzuela. Uh, I'm running against actually another independent, if you can believe it, in the district, um, Steve Kuzmich. He, okay. uh, he's a personal injury lawyer. Beth Van Dyne, the Republican, she worked in the administration. She's a former mayor of a city, um, okay. one of the major cities in the district. So name yep. recognition, uh, but she also was endorsed by Trump. Trump tweeted about her a couple months mm-hmm. ago. Uh, the The Democrat actually was involved in a runoff with someone who we thought, we didn't think it was going to be her. We thought it was going to be a, a retired Air Force colonel who actually lived two hours outside the district. Uh, okay. And so I think she was being propped up by the traditional arm of the Democratic Party. And I think Candace was being backed by the same progressive arm that, uh, that got AOC. Got it. Got it. Got it. And so the district, I I mean, I always like to look into the district and, and see how it's swinging. You know, it was Democrat until 2005 um, for about 25 years. My kids are fighting. So we're going to hear that on the recording. And, you know, for about an equal amount of time now, we've got, uh, we've got a Republican in there. Do you have a sense as to where people are, are where people are, are people swaying towards an independent or are they, are they just so dead set on making sure that the district doesn't either swing Republican or swing Democrat, that they're just kind of retrenching to the, mm-hmm. to the standard bearers? Yeah. Uh, what I'm seeing is, so the district voted actually for Beto in the midterms. Um, so it's a district that, and even uh, the, the Democratic uh, candidate in 2016 uh, and 2018 for this district herself wasn't widely touted. Uh, she's a CPA who's just, you know, campaigned for the last couple of years as a Democrat and made it pretty close without without a lot of support from the Democratic uh, Party. And so 
I think there was a sense of some blood in the water. Beto, again, they, they voted for Beto over Cruz in the midterm. Mm-hmm. And so it's a district that's proven that they don't mind voting with their values over party. And yeah. But some of the people that I've spoken to, or a lot of the people I've spoken to, I think there is definitely an appetite for this kind of pragmatic platform that mm-hmm. emphasizes solutions over over division and dysfunction and party. Uh, there, what I'm sensing is that a lot of them are eager just to vote Democrats out, or I'm sorry, Republicans out. So yeah. there's more of a there's more of that than uh, they're not even like super in love with the Democrats, but they're just like we really can't do with Republicans right now. Uh, so I think my, my reading the tea leaves, you know, and this could change. I think if people sense that my campaign is viable and we can get in front of enough people, I definitely, I think that there's a winning strategy there. Yeah. If we, if we can make enough noise and enough stink, I think that in 2022 and the district lines will be redrawn. Uh, so there's no telling how that will be cut up, how the Texas state house decides to cut that up. But, yeah. um, my sense is that in 2022, I think people are just going to go to war with the establishment in general. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if you're Republican or Democrat. And so I think, I think there's an appetite now for an independent platform, but I think really in 2022, I think you're going to see people who really are, are craving that. Yep. I, I agree there. I think this is going to be the decade of change. I really Mm do. Um, If folks in the district want to learn about you and want to support you, what can they do? They can go to the website, bowerfortexas.com. Uh, they can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Uh, and we're, we're pretty, because of coronavirus, we are uh, emphasizing just pumping out as much content as we can. So that's, that's what's on our to-do list. And if, if you don't live in the district and you want to access your podcast, what's, what's mm-hmm. that? Where can they go? Yeah, if you want to access the podcast, uh, it is Behind the Scene, S-E-E-N, and that is at wonymedia.com, W-O-N-Y.com. And it's also on Apple Podcasts and uh, Spotify and and all those good things. Well, listen, I, I, I think if folks are looking to vote for somebody of principle, you certainly pass the test there. Um. And, you know, thanks for your time, man, too. This is a really, I told you we were going to get a little off-road and I hope you enjoyed that because I thought it was, I I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the conversation. Totally. No, I I really did too. Thanks for, thanks for reaching out and and having me and, uh, you know, really enjoyed the talk. Uh, Just enjoyed learning more about you and knowing that there's more uh, folks, like-minded folks out there. Now, the thing I found most interesting about Mark was the combination of charity, service, duty, and personal responsibility all wrapped into one. And I'm going to take a shot at conservative media here because they talk loudly and frequently about personal responsibility as the solution for problems such as crime and homelessness. And yet their only prescription is that people vote for the candidates they like. And maybe if we extended that idea of personal responsibility to our responsibility to take care of our fellow citizens and ensure they're well taken care of, we could alleviate some of the problems we see today instead of just being angry about it all the time. Now, if you're in the 24th district, you can learn more about Mark at BauerForTexas.com. That's B-A-U-E-R, Bauer, F-O-R, 4, 
and Texas, which is spelled like Texas.com. If you're in the 24th district, you probably know that last part already. If you're not in the district or if you're in the district and interested in checking out his podcast, you can find it at Behind the Scene. That's S-E-E-N. It touches on a lot of really interesting issues such as racial justice and a whole bunch of other relevant cultural stuff. Very, very interesting stuff. Very interesting perspective. Now, next week, we've got Professor Douglas Amy from Mount Holyoke College joining me. He's the author of several books on proportional representation and electoral reform and runs two websites, governmentisgood.com, which teaches about all the good things government provides, and his newest project, secondratedemocracy.com, discussing some of the structural quirks of American democracy that make us less democratic. And we're going to discuss this new site the items he views as the biggest obstacles to a more responsive government. And I'm hoping he's going to blow apart my support for the Electoral College, because as far as I can tell, I am the only person who didn't vote for Trump who still wants it. I hope you'll join me. As always, editorial advisor is Adam. I am the Owl Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in North Carolina by the big Gino Jason Putney. Theme music in... (laughs) We're doing it in reverse this time. Theme music produced in Norway by Quellertak and the rest of it. That is the voice produced by myself, Daniel Sally. See you next week. <laughs>